Good evening. On Monday, the 26th of November, John Dreyfus will be speaking on Gerald Mennell and the Westminster Press. This is, I think, John Dreyfus's 10th Book Arts Press speaking engagement in the past 15 years, and we're always very glad to see him. On Monday, the 17th of January, uh, Monday, the 17th of December, uh, G. Thomas Tansel, a.k.a. Second Row Center, will be delivering the 1990 Malkin Lecture, Books, uh, Museums, Libraries, and Reading, uh, Monday, December 17th. It's a great pleasure th this evening to welcome Therese de Homtine for her first occasion uh, lecturing to the Friends of the Book Arts Press. Thank you. Well, uh, ladies, ladies and gentlemen, um, the subject of my lecture tonight is uh, the, the or origins of medieval uh, chanceries in uh, the Low Countries, especially in the county of Flanders, and the results of recent research. Uh, first, I uh, should like to show you a map um, on the region uh, uh, I will talk about. Uh, this is the these are the low countries with uh, the principalities and uh, bishoprics. You see, uh, here is the county of Flanders with um, the um, diocese of Cambrai of Tournai uh, till 1146 um, with the bishopric of Noyon, one diocese, diocese of uh, Arras, um, with Cambrai, together one diocese till 1093. And uh, I shall talk also about Hainaut, the county of Hainaut, the county of Holland. And this is the bishopric of Taiwan, and so I think that's it. Um, medieval chanceries are the offices where charters and other diplomatic documents issued by sovereigns and other lay or ecclesiastical rulers were produced by staff of trained dictatores, so we call the intellectual authors of the charters, and scriptores, writers, and sometimes calligraphers of these charters, supervised by a chancellor who usually is also an important political personality. But this definition is highly theoretical because most of the so-called chanceries didn't have the infrastructure required to produce all the documents they were asked for, certainly not at the beginning of their existence. To prove the existence of a chancery is not always very easy. Documents establishing formally the beginning of a chancery are very rare, if non-existent. In fact, most diplomatists are content if they find a person called chancellor in Latin, cancellarius, in the sources, and then regard the existence of a chancery, cancellaria in Latin, probable. But since the word cancellaria doesn't appear in the sources before the second half of the 12th century and always in the meaning of the office of the, of the cancellarius, we have to be cautious in interpreting the appearance of a person called cancellarius 
in the entourage of a medieval ruler as an indication of the existence of a chancery which delivered charters and other diplomatic documents. For example, in the county of Hainaut, the first known so-called chancellor of the count in the year 1114 is a fiscal agent who collected fines for his employer. Yet, the absence of a person labeled cancellarius at the court of medieval prince is not a convincing argument that he hadn't a chancery at his disposal. The Counts of Holland, for example, never had a cancellarius at the head of their chancery, but a protonotarius. And the bishops of Arras never mentioned a chancellor in their charters, although they had a very well-organized chancery. This makes clear that we have to find other evidence to prove the existence of and the activity of minor chanceries, especially in the region we are talking about, the Lao countries and its patchy principalities and dioceses. The primary and almost unique sources for this research are the charters themselves, and especially those issued by the rulers of whom we want to investigate whether or not they had an office of the charters at their disposal. Another way that diplomatists can detect chancery activities is to trace persons in the list of testifiers called notarius, capellanus, clericus, cartator, scriba or sigillarius all of them possible indications of a chancery-like business. In fact, only the last three qualifications, cartator, scriba, sigillarius, provide sure clues, carta being one of the words used by contemporaries to name a charter, scriba indicating a skilled writer and sigillarius qualifying the beer of the ruler's seal responsible for the validation of his charters. Regarding the, the notarii, capellani and clerici, although their quality as ecclesiastical and as literate members of the ruler's household, in Latin curia, looks to be certain, we need more proofs to be sure that they were active staff members of a chancery. One possible indication is the appearance of those persons in the so-called recognitio formulae of the, cart, of the charters, showing them as sigillatores, scriptores, subscriptores, recognitores. Yet, both last qualifications mean that they exercise a control on the contents and the formal aspects of the documents, not necessarily on the material production of it. They are thus mentioned by name as participants in at least one aspect of the chancery business. Also, their appearance in datum or actum permanum formulae points in the same direc direction, but we must be aware that clichés and formulae from other chanceries may have influenced the language of these documents. So, the only really safe way to identify chancery activity is to proceed to what to what the Germans call Schriftvergleichung, comparison of hands. This means identifying the hand of a single scribe in the service of one issuer for in, char in charters issued by this person, bishop, count, etc., 
meant for many different beneficiaries. If, in contrast, we find charters issued by many different rulers written by the same scribe among the records of a single abbey or a chapter, we can conclude that it was not the issuer but the beneficiary who had at his disposal a scriptorium to produce the charters he wanted to obtain from different rulers. To make this method of detection work, we need a very large amount of comparative material of original contemporary documents. At the University of Ghent in Belgium, where I am working, there is a photographic collection of all original charters produced in the Lao countries until 1225. The purpose of this collection is to make a study of the paleographical particularities of the diplomatic documents of the covered regions and to investigate, among other things, when the Carolina was first replaced by Gothica, in what circumstances and in what setting it all took place. Until now, the collection of Ghent has been essentially used by researchers to identify hands and scriptoria. The major problem concerning the method of Schriftvergleichung is, is that for most of the beginning chanceries of the low countries we want to trace, there are too few original charters preserved to make safe conclusions. Moreover, most of the 12th century hands having been produced very slowly in calligraphy are not in easy to individualize. Another possible way around this problem is to look for scriptoria usages and not for individual hands. With enough comparative material, we can look for specific usages concerning things as ornamental initials, abbreviation signs, graphic symbols such as cross and chrismon in the, in the invocatio formulae and elsewhere, and for other characteristics such as chirograph devices, direction of the use of parchment in the land or in the broad, specific way to attach seals, color of the wax of the seals, and so on. All these things can give us clues in identifying the origin of the material production of a charter, but not of the composition of the text itself. The last possibility for establishing where the charters of a medieval prince were produced and if he had a chancery to rely on for making his records is to examine, examine charters only av available in copied form. The last way is thus the identification of formulae used by the so-called dictators, intellectual authors of the charters. Although this method isn't so reliable as the Schriftvergleichung and has sometimes been criticized by purists, its use provides us with very interesting results which allow us to recognize chancery activity at an early stage. It also offers the possibility of drawing a distinction between intellectual authorship, dictamen, and material authorship, scriptio, when originals are available. This possibility sometimes leads to amazing results for diplomatists eager to know precisely how charters were prepared and delivered. The basis of the formulae identi identification method is the same as that to use to, used to identify hands. Some formulae 
Mostly of the protocol and eschatical parts of the documents are checked in the charters of one issuer, which were intended for different beneficiaries, and if the similarities are more important than the differences, we can assume a common origin, the chancery or office of the charters of the issuer. If, on the other hand, the formulae found in the charters of several issuers but intended for one addressee are all very similar, we may assume that the latter was the intellectual author of the records delivered to him. This should not be too surprising. The addressees often demanded written documents confirming their rights or possessions from owners of an authentic seal. So they must have, uh, they often must have at, had at hand fully, fully prepared documents to present to the personality from whom they wished a confirmation or an authentication. In this case, if the contents and the form of the document were acceptable, to the would-be issuer, the only task left to him and his officers was to validate the document with a monogram, a seal, or another validation mark. In our study of the origins of the Chancery of the Counts of Flanders, we came across various types of cooperation between author and beneficiaries of charters. Even for the validation, it was sometimes left to the beneficiary to choose the color of the wax and the material of the tie for attaching the seal. It is true that we have to be very careful when classifying the formulae into chancery and beneficiaries formulae. Mutual influences are always possible and beneficiaries often try to compose a text in terms they hope the author will easily agree with. Therefore, to begin our study, we choose the so-called motu proprio charters, i.e. the charters delivered at the initiative of the author himself and not in response to a request we may reasonably expect that these charters will have been composed by the staff of the author if he had a chancery at his disposal. If we have a series of this type of documents covering a relatively short period, we can sort out the most common formulae and keep them in mind as models of chancery formulae. The formulae of um, non-motu proprio documents from the same period then have to be compared with the stock chancery formulae. With both the original documents and the charters only available in copies, we also can examine, examine word frequencies and word preferences to determine the origin of dictamen. One of the findings of uh, my teacher, Preveni's research on the charters of the Counts of Flanders in the 11th cent uh, century, in the 90s of the 11th centuries, was, the chancery, uh, was that chancery officers used words such as carissima and delectissima, expressing the love of the count for his wife that beneficiaries never dared to use. This then was a very summary account of the way we, proceed, we proceeded in our own research on the chancery of the 12th century Counts of Flanders. And now the results of the most recent research on chanceries in the Low Countries by Belgian and Dutch historians and diplomatists. Before 1100, the, the only minor chancery, ch 
chanceries. This means non-royal or imperial chanceries, for as you know, all the principalities of the region we are talking about were under the sovereignty either of France or of the German Empire. Thus, the lower chanceries in the lower countries before 1100 were all ecclesiastical. The bishops of Cambrai and Noyon-Tournay, two important prelates of the, the ecclesiastical province of Reims, the former a vassal of the German emperor, the latter of the king of France, had well-organized chanceries in the 11th century. Their chancellors and staffs were members of the cathedral chapter. The usages of their chanceries were by then already quite settled and they produced a significant amount of charters. They were essentially influenced by the papal chancery and the chancery of the archbishops of Reims. Unfortunately, their charters are not yet completely edited and we are still waiting for a complete diplomatic and paleographical study of the charters of the bishops of Cambrai and Noyon-Tournay. Although scholars like the late Father Nicolas Heugebaert and Professor Eric van Mingrood from Leuven have published a lot on special topics concerning these chanceries. One of the original aspects of the chancery production of Noyon-Tournay is the systematic use of the chirograph form with exceptional, exceptionally long devices instead of the word chirographum, which is the, usu the usual form. I will show you them to you later on the slides. The system of chirographs permits permits the chancery a way of keeping track of its activities, even before the regist registration of outgoing records. With this method, the document is written twice on the same sheet of parchment or vellum, then cut in half with one part being kept in the chancery archives. The technique was spread widely afterwards, especially in the area of the linguistic frontier between Flemish and French-speaking Flanders. Towns like Ypres, Tournai, Douai are known for their large collections of chirographs, especially on economical, financial and socio-economic topics. The Diocese of Arras, separate from Cambrai in 1093, immediately developed a unique chancery under the impulse of its first bishops. A very recent study by a young scholar of the Louvain University, Benoît-Michel Toc, has revealed that the bishops of Arras themselves took a large part in their own chancery activities and controlled the chancery personally, insofar that the chancellor was never nominated. The original recognitio formula with autograph cross of the bishop himself is the most characteristic aspect of the Arras chancery. The staff here was also made up of members of the cathedral chapter. About the dioceses of Terouanne and Utrecht, the latter being the only bishopric not submitted to the Archbishop of France, but to Cologne, we still know too little to allow safe conclusions concerning chancery habits in the 11th and 12th centuries. The big and ancient Benedictine abbeys of the Low Countries, such as Saint-Bertin in Saint-Omer, Saint-Vast in Arras, 
Saint Rictrude in Marchienne, Saint Amand, and the two abbeys of Ghent, Saint Peter and Saint Bavo, had in the 11th century scriptoria comparable to the episcopal chanceries. They were very well organized with staffs of scriptores and other literate monks able to handle the administration of large domains and seigneuries, as well as to produce the liturgical, pastoral, historical, and other literary manuscripts they need in their everyday occupations. In all aspects of the writing business and administration, the ecclesiastical world was much in advance of lay society in the 11th century. But the gap between the two worlds was to a large extent filled during the 12th century, when lay rulers of non-royal rank enlisted the services of their ecclesiastical servants, usually capellani of their house chapels and canons of the chapters founded by their ancestors to build up their own administration. The first lay rulers to organize a real chancery in the Lao countries were first the Count of Flanders, Thierry, surnamed of Alsace, and then Baldwin IV, Count of Hainaut, probably in the third quarter of the 12th century. Both rulers were tied to each other through family, through family bonds, but at the same time they were mortal enemies and rivals for power, especially in the region of Cambrai, which is on the border of the French Kingdom and the German Empire. Most likely, the Count of Hainaut was copying his Flemish rival when he established a chancery, so we have competition to thank for the records, records left by his administration. Before the end of the century, the Counts of Namur, the Dukes of Brabant, or Basse-Lotharingi, and the Counts of Holland had also equipped themselves with an embryonic chancery. It seems very likely that the first concern of the lay rulers was the management of their finances and the administration of their domainial income. So the first time we come across a cancellarius committees in Flanders in 1080, in Hainaut in 1114, the term means a fiscal or dominial officer. In 1089, the task of a Chancellor of Flanders, attributed to the Provost of the Castor Chapter of Saint Donatian in Bruges, is officially defined as follows by the Count. I quote, Susceptor et exactor de omnibus reditibus principatus Flandriae, magister meorum notariorum et capellanorum et omnium clericorum in curia comitis servientium. The chancellor's task was thus to be the general receiver of the dominial income and the collector of the taxes and at the same time to act as the chief of the notaries chaplains and clerks serving the count in his court. Nothing is said about the composition, writing or delivering of charters, nor about the keeping of the count's seal. And when, in the second quarter of the 12th century, the first mention appears of people participating in the making of the count's charters, We'll be, we will show you some of them later in the slides. They are named Capellanus, Gerulus Sigili, it means keeper of the seal, Cancellarius. 
the Chancellor Provost of Bruges mentioned in the Act of 1089 is, however, not one of them. We must, in fact, wait until the third quarter of the 12th century to see a Chancellor of the Count managing an, or an organized office of the charters. In Flanders, is it Robert, Robert of Air, a political personality of the first rank? In Hainaut, the famous Gilbert of Mons, chronicler, ambassador, and intimate political collaborator of Baldwin V. We know for certain that men like these participated in the Comtal Chancery activities, especially as authors of the dictamen of the charters, in control functions and validation functions, sometimes also as scriptores. We will show you uh, in a few moments the seal of a Chancellor of Flanders representing a man sitting at a desk with a calame in the hand and writing a carta. Nevertheless, they remain financial officers as well. The income of the Chancellor of Flanders in the 12th century, for example, is divided in a part at officium de cancellaria and a part at officium de redeninga, redeninga being the equivalent of the Anglo-Norman exchequer. At the Cantal Court of Flanders in the 12th and 13th centuries, identified chancery staff members are frequently also occupied in the financial administration, although it's possible to distinguish between officium notarii on the one hand being receivers essentially occupied with financial administration in dominial centres and sometimes already laymen farming the dominial incomes in the 12th century and on the other hand the curia notarii. The latter were ambulant clerics in the count's service who followed the wandering court from one residence to another to fill the various daily needs of the administration. The careers of both chancellors mentioned before, Robert of Air in Flanders and Gilbert of Mons in Hainaut were impressive. Both men were of obscure descent, yet each boasted broad skills. And with the prince's favors, they became the enviable possessors of might and wealth. As clerics, they were overloaded with ecclesiastical honors and prebends by their patrons, who had the power to dispense these rewards to faithful employees. We must bear in mind that the 12th century is also characterized by the introduction of paid officers instead of the old feudal servants, especially in Flanders where a monetary economy was in place. The chancellors of the second half of the 12th century are probably, along with some unknown bourgeois, such as crafts and tradesmen of the new flourishing towns, the most striking examples of social ascension and success in their time. In Flanders, the most active and faithful members of the chancery staff were also generously rewarded by the Count. Prebends as provost or dean in several countal chapters even in cathedral, chap cathedral chapters were the usual sinecures given at the end of a career as a chancery officer. Through this policy, the Count was assured of the presence of loyal servants in various key positions of his dominion.
and he could reaffirm his personal might by imposing his favorites on the clerical authorities. Thus, the services he needed from his ecclesiastical servants were to a large extent paid for by the church. We know only very few things about the education and the, and the scholarship of chancery employees in the 12th century. Most of them were probably trying, trained by other staff members and introduced into the mysteries of composition and calligraphy by doing it under the vigilant eye of a competent elderly man. Man. The chancery was certainly organized in a hierarchical way with functions attributed to seniority and the advancement of skills. Offices called magistri were very rare in the early chanceries and we never know from what university or chapter school and in what subject they had graduated. When they are mentioned, magistri always fulfill only technical functions in the chancery. Without, however, being the official head of the chancery. The chancery of the Count of Flanders, unlike the episcopal chanceries, had no permanent residence. It was there where the Count and his household happened to be, and that could me mean everywhere in his counties. For example, Philip of Alsace was also Count of Vermandois and Amiens. When the prince traveled through through his domains, domains and from one residence to another, a small company of clerics went with him to care for his spiritual needs and to handle administrative tasks. In the dominial received centers, the so-called officium notarii were available for tasks concerning the delivering of charters. Each residence even the country houses where the count sojourned for hunting had a chaplain able to do some chancery work. The only permanent hall probably was the castle church of St. Danassian et Bruges, where the count's chancellor and provost of this chapter had his residence and where the canto archives were kept till the 14th century. There is no formal registration of outgoing charters until the end of the 13th century. In Holland, Hainaut, until the beginning of the 14th century. And the only way to keep track of the charters which had been drawn up was the chirograph technique by which a double of the charter was preserved in the own archives. This technique was only used for international treaties and in rare occasions for other contracts between the count and another person <clears throat> or institution. <laughs> the notarii and other clerici of the count's household were not only delivering charters, and sometimes controlling the accounts of local receivers. Some of them also had an important role to play as councillors of the prince in the select curia committees, where the count held council together with a very small group of so-called barones, primates, et sapientes. We also know that some of them were members of the Regency Council when the Count was abroad on one of his numerous expeditions in the Near East on crusade or pilgrimage, Count Thierry 
went four times to the Holy Land, his son Philip two times, and his grandson Baldwin died as Emperor of Constantinople. The same faithful chancery officers were also employed for diplomatic missions and embassies to foreign courts. During the last quarter of the 12th century, a new specialization was introduced in the Flemish administration, whereby some clerici committees became bailiffs, the new judicial officers, paid to represent the Count's interest in the towns. This innovation has been studied by an American scholar, Louis de Grèze. In summary, we can say how the Council Office of the Charters really worked in these early times is not so easy, easy to apprehend. Our research has proved that various kinds of cooperation between beneficiaries and issuer were possible and that some addressees almost always wrote their own charters, even when the Count had furnished a text to copy, such as in the case of motu proprio charters with rent donations on Cantal Recept offices. In 1177, for example, Count Philip, before his departure, on a pilgrimage to the Holy Land, gave to 61 different beneficiaries a rent on his dominial incomes. The text of 48 charters is preserved, 80 of them being originals. The terms of these charters are almost the same, with only slight variations concerning the name of the beneficiary, the amount of the rent, and the place and name of the, office, of the officer where and through whom the rent has to be paid. The dictamen of these charters has an unquestionable chancery-bound origin, but not all of the 18 originals were written by so-called chancery hands. Twelve of them are written by four different chancery hands. Three are certainly written in the scriptoria of the beneficiaries, and we can't identify the hands of the remaining three. It is very likely that the chancery was for this occasion helped by extra hands, because for three out of the four chancery hands, we have no further trace of their activity after the year 1177. That year was a very busy one for the chancery of Count Philip. In the six months before his departure to the Holy Land, nearly 100 charters were delivered most of them motu proprio documents with gifts the Count wanted to give to ease his conscience and settle his affairs at the eve of a perilous journey. What we are sure of is that the Cantal Chancery in this early stage was organized in a very pragmatic way and that the competences of many people were used when needed. The dictatores didn't dispose of formula books and the lack of registers of outgoing documents didn't allow a very systematic use of typical formulae. This is what makes the tracing of chancery formulae so difficult for us. The chancery dictator used this memory to compose the charters of his master while the beneficiary, in contrast, could draw on his own archives to find formulae in charters issued by the present count or by his ancestors. In any case, when we study 
the organization of an early lay chancery and try, and try to understand its functioning, we have to ask, accept that it was not very much of a system and was not very specialized. The, ability, the abilities of the few people who constitute the literate entourage of the prince were employed in every possible way. If we had to uh, characterize the products of a lay chancery in the 12th century in opposition to those of ecclesiastical scriptoria, we could say that the charters of the former show a much more simple design, are formulated with fewer words and are more businesslike and mostly written in a more cursive diplomatic hand, showing fewer reminiscences of the book writing than the charters of prelates, bishops and abbots. The study of chanceries is a very interesting research subject, opening windows to many unexpected perspectives on various aspects of the history of men and institutions. I hope that with this short expose of research, I should like to show you now a few slides to illustrate my lecture, and then I thank you already for your kind attention. You have to admit it looks dead, <laughs> and I assure you it's going to the trash immediately after this lecture. Charter of uh, 1064. It's uh, a, char a charter from the Bishop of Cambrai, Lidbert, for the Abbey of Saint Sepulchre in Cambrai. In the middle, you see the monogram of the, ger the German Emperor Henry uh, IV. And on the both sides between the place for the seal, you see the name of the scriptor and the name of the chancellor in a recognitio formule. Here, Parvinus, um, Parvinus, mm, Yes, that's Parvinus Monachus Scripsit Verimbaldus Cancellarius Recensuit. This is a charter of another bishop of Cambrai, 
uh, a charter of 1116. It's a charter of, you see, Burghardis, Burchard of Cambrai, for the Abbey of uh, Anchin, with a formula indicating uh, Chancellor Werimbaldus uh, II, Ego Werimbaldus Cancellarius Scripsi et Recarnovi. Here you have an other way to attach the seal. It's not on uh, the parchment, but on a tie. And um, Werimbaldus in 1116 is not the same uh, chancellor as uh, in the previous charter. Uh, important for the uh, chancery of the bishops of Cambrai is the chrismon in the invocatio and um, the gap between the list of uh, the testifiers here yeah, it's the beginning signum theoderici archidiaconi and the gap between and the actum formula a year later uh, the same bishop Burchardus you see his name is written in a different way C H not J um, there is the same kind of formula, Ego Verimbaldus Cancellarius Scripsi et Recensui, but you can see it's not the same hand as in the previous charter. Here it's uh, the diocese of uh, Noyon Tournay. Uh, you have uh, a chirograph. I told you about this long chirograph devices. Um, it's a, a charter of 1106 of Baudry, Baldricus, only the first letter you see, can see there. And uh, the device of the chirograph begins with a, a crux, Across and uh, you have uh, privilegium sancti Bertini abatis. This is very typical. This long chirograph device, very typical for the chancery of Noyon Tournay. And you have the signum of the cancellarius. Signum Guidonis Cancellari. Here again, Noyon Tournay. It's uh, a chirograph of Bishop Simon of Noyon Tournay. Um, and it's uh, a chirograph of 1125, uh, Simon of Noyon Tournay was the last bishop of the United um, Bishoprics of Noyon and uh, Tournay. In 1146, um, there was an apart uh, bishop, uh, uh, bishopric of Tournay and uh, Noyon. Here also you have this long device of the chirograph, uh, privilegium, then a crux, um, sancti bavonis gandensis. And uh, uh, again, a signum of a chancellor, in this case, Chancellor Hugh. This is a part of a charter of Bishop Lambert of Arras. You see, uh, typical in uh, these charters of the bishops of Arras. It is a, a charter of 1111. Is the autograph cross of the bishop himself 
uh, in a formulae, very interesting formulae, Golambertus de Miseratione Atribatensis Episcopus, his Nostre Pagne Scriptum Relegi, subscripsi et in nomine Patris et Filii et Spiritus Sancti propria manu confirmavi. And then his cross. Uh, here it's again uh, um, the charter of a bishop of Arras. It's much later. It's from 1138. The charter of the famous Alvise, bishop of Arras, uh, to the abbot of Anchin. Also with an autograph crux cross of the bishop himself and with a similar formulae. This is a charter of uh, Count Thierry of uh, Flanders for the chapter of St. Donatian in Bruges, mentioning at two occasions in the list of testifiers and in the dating formula of his Chancellor Roger. Uh, here in the list, as first person in the list of testifiers, Signum Rogeri Prepositi Brugensis at Cancellari Comites, and also in, um, here in the datum formula, Roberti Cancellari Com uh, Rogeri Cancellari Comites Prepositure Anno Secundo. Charter of uh, 1128. Now, again, a charter, a part of a charter of uh, Count uh, Thierry um, for the Abbey of Saint Martin de Fives near Lille. It's 1136. And um, a there is a recognitio formula mentioning a chancellor named Baldwin of Bruges as writer and recognitor of the charter. This man is, of course, not the provost of Bruges and cancellarius committees named in the previous charter. Ego Baldwinus Brugensis Cancellarius Scripsi et Subscripsi. I think you uh, must uh, read... Ego Baldwinius Brugensis, and then Cancellarius Scripsi et Subscripsi. Here is a charter of Countess uh, Sibylla, Countess of uh, Flanders, wife of uh, Count uh, Cherry to the Abbey of Anchin. It's uh, during uh, one of her husband's pilgrimages to the Holy Land. Uh, among the testifiers, uh, you have uh, mentioned Rogeri Prepositui Brugensis, but you have also a Fulco Cancellari, Cancellarius. So, uh, again, the provost of Bruges, who is the head of the chancery, and a person called Cancellarius, who is probably doing the real uh, work. Here you have the seal of Countess uh, Sibylla. Um, the wife of uh, 12th century rule was bound to have a proper seal in order to be able to authenticate the charters she was asked for when her husband had left the country for long journeys abroad. Sibylla's seal is the first uh, seal, preserved seal, having belonged to a woman of non-royal uh, rank. Sibylla 
Countess of Flanders, was the daughter of Fulco of Anjou, who became uh, king of Jerusalem. Another Countess of Flanders before her, Countess Clemens, uh, had also uh, a seal. Her husband was Robert uh, II, named of Jerusalem. He was also uh, a big traveler, so the Countess had to have a seal uh, also. But her seal is not uh, preserved. You see the beautiful design of the clothes. She's holding a flower in her hand. That is the seal of Matilda, the second wife of Count uh, Philip, the son of uh, Thierry. It's very interesting because it's the first uh, seal of a woman uh, showing the arms on the counter seal. And remarkably, she um, chose to uh, have the, the arms of her father. You see the shields of Portugal. She was the daughter of uh, uh, the king of Portugal. Her name was Matilda in Flanders. In her own country, she was named Teresa. <coughs> Here you have the seal of her husband. It's a very beautiful uh, design seal. Uh, a knight uh, with a complete armor on his horse. Here you have the uh, palm of justice. Uh, on the shield you can see very clearly the lion of uh, Flanders, of the, the arms of Flanders. Also on the counter seal, the shield with the lion. The legend of uh, the seal is Sigillum uh, Philippi Comitis Flandrier, and it goes on on the counter seal at Viromandie. Here, a remarkable uh, charter, again from uh, Count Thierry. Um, <clears throat> it's a charter of. Um, uh, Problem with uh, yes, yeah. a charter of 1142, for the Abbey of the Dunes at Coxide, mentioning in a recognitio formula a, 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 a certain Walter, chaplain as writer and subscriptor. This is um. Ego Walterus Capellanus Scripsi et Subscripsi. It's very interesting, you see, has begun with a very nice handwriting with much decorum, and when he saw that his parchment was too small, so he continued in a <laughs> more plain handwriting. It's, it's essentially the same uh, hand. You can see it very uh, clearly. Uh, this is again a uh, uh, charter of uh, uh, Count Thierry and Countess Sibylla for the Abbey of Laws near Lille. And again, you have in uh, datum permanum formula the same Galteri Capellani et Notari. Galteri, Walteri, it's the same uh, man as in the previous charter. This is charter of 1152. Uh, no. I will show you two charters of the famous series of 1177. 
You see uh, these two uh, charges for uh, two different uh, beneficiaries. One first for the Abbey of Dudust at Lissewege near Bruges, and here for the regular canons of uh, Sonnebeke, Canonicis de Sinebeca. And here you see the formulas of uh, this typical transfer uh, charters for this uh, period. It's um, <clears throat> um, typical are the very economical use of parchment and uh, the handwriting without decorum. You see even the uh, tie to attach the seal is in the middle of uh, the writing. It's very interesting. And it's the same formula in the previous charter, I think. So I can have the, yes. See the same handwriting, the same formula in both these uh, charters. Um, this uh, is a charter of uh, Margaret, um, Countess of Flanders, also in a series of um, many charters to different um, beneficiaries in 1194, just before her death. Did you see here the same hand as in the previous charter? The first charter was for the Abbey of Lowes near Lille, here for the nuns of Papinglo. Uh, here, Conquesi, Legavi, Sororibus de Papinglo, Quadraginta, Solidos, Singulis, Anis. and then the name of the receipt for the rent. And the time of the year when they had to be paid, Dominica in Palmis. Here, um, two charters of Baldwin IX for different beneficiaries, both written also by the same hand. Um, above the uh, charter for the small town of Ardenburg in Zealand, Flanders, from 1201, and the other uh, for the Abbey of Eckhart in Bruges in the year 1197. And here, what I told you, is uh, a seal of the Chancellor of uh, Flanders, William, you can see him sitting at his desk with the kalam in his hand and he's writing what is said here, a carta. So he's represented in his daily business. So I thank you.